five themes through Romans. I've encouraged you every week if you're taking notes to write those down. And those are sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. We will again see those throughout the message today, especially in terms of sin and sovereignty. But I also, he's going to introduce to us, Paul is going to introduce to us what I call the cycle of sin this morning, and it is how sin progresses. And we're going to see that clearly in the word. And and so as we go through that and we get to that, we're going to point that out. So let me read this passage, and then we're going to pray over it, and then we'll go into it. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. God, protect your word this morning. Please ensure that everything that is spoken, everything that is preached is truth. Reveal anything, or, or I'm sorry, keep anything that is, that is incorrect that might lead anyone astray out of my mouth by whatever means necessary so that your truth will not only pierce, but will then guard and protect our hearts from the lies that are around us. We thank you for this word and we thank you for the hope that it brings to us and the truth that it brings to us. In your name we pray, amen. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In my welcome, I talked about wrath a little bit, but wrath is, and I could be wrong, I don't know if there's a statistic on this, but if I had to guess, 
If there's a number one reason for why people say they reject God, it is, it is because of the notion that God is wrathful, and he is. But it, it's because of that fact that they reject God. They, they either reject God or they reject that he is wrathful. So they accept his love and reject the wrath, or they accept the wrath, but then say that a wrathful God could not be loving, and a loving God is not a God that is worthy of being worshiped, which is true. But we see in God that these things are not contradictory. They exist together. They are complementary. So we need to understand, therefore, what God's wrath is and what that means. Wrath, write this down if you're taking notes, is God's just and fair judgment on a person or people for their sin or disobedience. It is deserving. It is just. It is fair which is what people miss when they think of God's wrath. They think, how could a God, and, and we've talked about this before, how could a God who is loving send someone to an eternal hell for 60 or 70 or 80 years of sin? Because we deserve it. We've earned it. Wrath is not contradictory to love. The two go together in God's character, in who he is. So now that's, let's look at the difference between ungodliness and unrighteousness because, you know, I've read this many times and I'm not sure if I've even taken the time to, to recognize a difference. I think a lot of times we read stuff like this and we just assume that they kind of mean the same thing, like it's repeating itself because we don't want to take the time to actually study it. But they're not. They're not the same thing. They go together, but they're not the same thing. And I want to be careful about how I word this because it's, it's a little tricky. Ungodliness is the level of reverence and respect that is shown to a perfect and holy God. Okay, so, so it is inward and it is directed towards God. Now, that is not to say we could ever become like God. Obviously, we cannot. We know that. But it is the level of respect and reverence, the level of fear that we show him, loving fear that we show him. And then righteousness is outward and it is towards creation. It is the level of obedience to the statutes and laws and it could be towards God, towards a nation or a city, any type of governing body. Righteousness, in a sense, does not have to be simply in the, in the sense of a godly righteousness which is exactly why Jesus says that righteousness alone can't say, we can't be righteous. That's why, you know, the, the Pharisees thought that they had not committed adultery or murdered, so they were good. But he says, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery. Because this physical righteousness, this obeying of laws, we can never do it perfectly and therefore it can't save us. So, by worldly standards, righteousness does not have to flow from godliness, but a righteousness that is acceptable to God will flow from godliness. Okay, I hope that's clear. But we see here that unrighteousness suppresses truth. If righteousness or unrighteousness is how we deal with creation and unrighteousness suppresses truth, then our unrighteousness not only suppresses truth to those around us, to those who see our actions, 
we are a part of creation and therefore it will suppress truth to ourselves as well. So all of a sudden, even the things we say in private that no one else hears matter a little bit. Unrighteousness suppresses truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now we see the first step in this sin cycle that I talked about, which is the suppression of truth. And truth, what we see here, is made clear in creation. And even David in, in Psalm 37, this is a thousand years before Christ, or I'm sorry, not Psalm 37, Psalm 19. This is a thousand years before Christ. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Look at how vivid some of these verbs are. The heavens declare the glory. The sky above proclaims. Day to day pours out. Night to night reveals. Creation has been clear from the beginning that God exists. It makes it clear. And any atheist or skeptic agnostic would tell you that's dumb. There's nothing in creation that proves that God exists. Yes, there is. Order and design. They prove that God exists so clearly. Anywhere in life where we see order, we know that there is something or someone who created the order. It's common sense. Look down at your shoes. I'm serious. Do it. Look down at your shoes, okay? Some of you, I don't even know you very well. I've never said more than 10 words to you, but I could guarantee you without knowing you that the thought has never crossed your mind from the moment you first saw those shoes to right now that at one point everything was dust and then boom, the shoes appeared. You've never even had to think about that. That seems dumb to you. It doesn't even make sense. You know why? Because you know without ever having to thinking, without ever having to think about it, that someone or something created the shoes. Okay, those are just shoes. Modern science will try to tell us that two molecules bumped into each other and boom, earth. which has an, an atmosphere that makes us able to breathe in the way that we need to be able to breathe, that has the right temperature for us to sustain life. But then th they'll tell you that, again, there's nothing in creation that proves to us that God exists. This idea of order and design coming from something, that doesn't mean anything. But think about this. When, when people at NASA or these other organizations try to look for extraterrestrial life in space, one of the main things that they do is they'll put up these satellites and they'll be looking for transmissions or wavelengths that they can receive from light years away. And what they're looking for in those transmissions is patterns 
because they say that patterns prove at least the possibility of extraterrestrial life because there is no pattern that could just come about of its own. Something or someone would have to create the pattern, the order. That's literally what they look for is a pattern and that proves extraterrestrial life because of the creator behind whatever the creation is, the designer behind the design. And I'm not knocking science. Science, as it is truthful, should bring us all the more proof that God is real. But as truth has been suppressed, truth in everything, including science, has been suppressed. And so it's been turned into something that it's not. We're buying in and believing in theories that people have held for a thousand years that have never one time come close to being proven, but we take them as proof because we have the truth, but we reject it, so nothing else comes close to making sense. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Futile, if you look it up in the dictionary, it, it simply, a lot of times the definition you get is useless, but I think a better definition and, and one that, another one that I found was not producing any positive results. So don't think of futility as dead or asleep. Think of it as maybe it's producing, maybe something's coming out of it, but it's not producing anything positive. It may be moving, but it's not moving forward. How did they become futile in their thinking? They did not honor God and they did not give thanks to him. Let me ask you this question. And I want you to reflect. When was the last time you went to God in prayer without a prayer request? Prayer requests are not bad, they're wonderful. Anytime we have a concern for us, for someone else, we have a worry, we have something that's stressing us, we should absolutely go to God. But when was the last time you went to him simply to honor him for who he is and for his character, or you went to him to thank him for what he has done and what he promises he will do? Because that's what this says the sign of futility is. Are our minds futile in some ways? Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now we see the second stage of sin progression, which is man worshiping creation over the creator. Now, if this were the first stage, it couldn't be the first stage, it wouldn't make any sense because as we've seen, nature, simple truth and common sense and logic would tell us that that's irrational. It makes no sense to worship the creation when there's something even better that made the creation. But when we throw truth out the window and therefore the logic and common sense that come with it, it's fair game to go after anything that our hearts lust after, which is what it has been about 
from the beginning. It has been about what our hearts lust after. Wednesday night, the youth and I, we were going over Genesis chapter three. And then when I was getting ready for this message Thursday and Friday, and I, I was going into this section, I immediately thought of this because it's so clear. In Genesis chapter three, we see that God has already told Adam and Eve they can have anything they want. They can eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they will surely die. So Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes to Eve and he, he plants this deceptive seed. He asks this question, did God really say you could not eat of any tree in the garden? Which he knew was not what God said, but he's planting this seed of deception from the very first question. And she corrects him and says, no, we just can't eat of this tree because he said that we will surely die. And Satan says, no, you won't. He just doesn't want you to be wise like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. Chapter three, verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. When she saw that it was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desire to make one wise, all of a sudden that was more important than what God had told her. The very first sin came from a foundation of lust. And let's be clear, we, we often think of lust in a sexual context and often it is, and there's a reason for that. But I, I kind of want to present this to you. Lust is any action or thing that one may desire for that one may desire for pleasure, not for worship. Which makes sense why sex would be what we talk about, because I mean we're all human. There's really nothing that brings more physical pleasure than sex. But that, that's what lust is in a more general context, a more general definition for pleasure, not for worship. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Notice God is still sovereign, okay? It, it's not when it says gave them up, it's not like we would think of like when we give up, when we're trying to do something and we get tired and we just quit. He gave them up. Think of this like I have a piece of paper in my hand. I wanna get rid of it. So I walk to the trash can, I hold out my arm and I release my hand. And the gravity pulls that paper down. And I, I know that's what's gonna happen when I release my hand. So that's why I do it, because I, I'm getting rid of the paper. Well, when God opens his hand, the gravity of sin does what? It pulls them straight down into it. This is active. It's not a, a losing of sovereignty here. He's still completely sovereign. This is his act. When he gave them up, it was to the lusts of their hearts, which produced impurity, and that impurity manifested itself in the dishonoring of their bodies. That was the first, the main way that impurity manifested itself. So keep that in mind. 
Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Again, we see this cycle. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They suppressed truth and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And that was stage two that we talked about. So now look at this. Verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I, I want us... Well, let me say this first. This is the third part of the cycle, which is mankind using nature in an unnatural, self-serving way. So that first stage, which was suppressing truth, okay, idolatry is kind of, it's in its embryonic stage at that point. It's developing. It's there, but you can't really see it. And then that second stage, worshiping the creature or the creation over the creator, it's kind of made itself visible now. It's kind of at its infant stage. But once you get to this third stage, it is fully grown. It is leading the pack. And it's very clear. So there is an important thing that we should take from this. If we want to study or look at the moral upstanding of any society, culture, group, nation, church. There's something we can look at to be able to gauge that, and that is their sexual conduct. At stage one, which is stage one of the cycle, I mean, what you'll see is that you'll see some healthy marriages. You'll also see some, some broken marriages or maybe not totally broken, maybe some bending marriages. And you'll see some abstaining singles, those who are not married, but there, there will inevitably, because we live in a fallen world, there, there will be fornication that's taking place. There's nowhere that you can ever go with more than one or two people that that's not taking place. In stage two, marriage is kind of starting to be pushed out the window and in coming is this just do you, do your thing type of mentality. Fornication is present, it's, it's at the forefront and homosexuality is probably occurring but it hasn't made itself visible yet. But then when you get to stage three, it's openly practiced and celebrated. It's seen as a norm and it leads to other things. Now, I know this may not seem important right now. It may seem like I'm kind of going off on a, on a trail here, but this means something. Stick with me. Verses 28 through 32 and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I, I wanna be clear about some of these things. I think any time in scripture, at least me, when I see a list, my tendency is to just be like, I'm tired and this is a lot. I don't wanna go through this. Anytime I see a genealogy, Matthew 1, I'm like, chapter 2. But no, we need, to, we need to read stuff. We need to study. It's important. It's here for a reason. So let me make some of these words clear. Let me give you a definition for some of these words. Covetousness, that's kind of easy. That's greedy, okay? If you if you're, have a covetous heart, you're greedy. Malice is the intention or desire to do evil. Envy, listen to this definition. I like this, and I've never really thought about it this way. Discontentment at someone else's possessions or circumstances in comparison with your own. Strife is conflict. Maliciousness is the state of being in malice or the state of wanting to do harm to others or wanting to do harm in general. So malice can be an isolated thing, but maliciousness is when malice becomes a state. Slander, gossip and slander are similar, but they're not the same thing. Gossip is, this is an interesting definition to me, casual conversation about details of people or situations that are not confirmed to be true. Slander is purposely making false statements. So slander is the step up from gossip. Gossip will inevitably, if not checked, produce slander. Insolent is rudely lacking respect, haughty, proud, vain, arrogant, inventors of evil, that's interesting to me, literally coming up with new ways to do evil Disobedient to parents, that's pretty straightforward. I just said that one because every time the preacher used to say it, my mom would nudge me with her elbow. So if you're watching, mom, you're welcome. Ruthless, having no pity or empathy for others. Does this sound like society to you? Does this sound like what you're seeing on the news or on Facebook? because I think it kind of makes it clear right here where we stand. I don't think it's really up for debate anymore. <clears throat> I talked about this, the cycle of sin and how you can look at the sexual conduct of a group, a nation, a church, a culture. You can see where they stand based on that. But the acceptance of homosexuality marks a significant shift in the thinking of a society. So again, this is another thing I wanna be very careful about because what we're not doing is we're not making one sin less sin than another. Sin is sin, it's all deserving of the wrath of God. So we're not gonna go there. But sex between a man and a woman was created in the right, contact, right context as a good thing, as a form of worship. 
It is according to the nature that God created, but it can be taken out of context. So sex between a man and a woman in the context of a godly biblical marriage is a good, right thing. But when taken outside of that context, it is not. It's sexual impurity, but in a form, it follows nature, even though it's a sinful nature that it follows. Homosexuality does not follow nature. It is unnatural. So it is unnatural sexual impurity, and it is not a step above or a step worse, but it is a step beyond. It shows a shift, okay? Any sexual impurity is still sin. So again, I want to make that clear. But when not only sexual impurity, but unnatural sexual impurity is made both acceptable and celebratory, it marks the loss of the simplest sensibility and it is the beginning of the end. And do not, do not make the mistake of believing that more is not coming from it. The foundational argument behind homosexuality is these are my feelings or these are so-and-so's real feelings, so how can you say they're wrong? Well, first of all, never tell someone that their feelings are not real. Those absolutely are real feelings. But that's exactly why our desires can't be trusted. That's why in John 3, 3, Jesus says that to see the kingdom of God, we have to be born again. We cannot be who we are now or, or before we come into relationship with him. We can't be who we are before then. He has to make us new. And that's why in Psalm 37, the verse that everyone knows about God is going to give you the desires of your heart, but they miss that right before that, God says he wants to make himself the desires of your heart in order to give you the desires of your heart because the desires we have outside of him are terrible. They lead to just wrath. And so the idea that homosexuality, with the foundational argument being, this is how I feel, you can't tell me it's wrong, the idea that that won't lead to things like pedophilia is totally off. Don't get confused. Don't trick yourself. It's coming. In many ways, it's already here. But before long, it will be acceptable and it will be the norm. I don't tell you that to scare you. I just want you to understand and if you think this is just me making this up, let me, let me read something to you from, the, these are kind of compiled from many, all, all the other countries around the world. And we're talking about age of consent. All right, so age of consent, as we think of it, is the age at which it is legal to have sexual relations with someone. But you need to understand the age of consent, even in the most fair judicial systems, and, and no judicial system is fair, no judicial system is completely just, but even in the most fair, like the United States, and if you don't believe me, look at the judicial systems from other countries around the world. 
even the most fair judicial system, at that age, that age of consent, what happens is that it becomes extremely difficult to prove in court that the younger party did not give consent to the older party. That's the age in which it becomes not impossible, but pretty close. Because if, there's, if, if they're under that age, then you can say, well, that's the age. You can't do that. That's your evidence right there. But if they're above the age, unless there was another party present, it's one person's word against another. There's really, a, a, it's very difficult to prove anything. So understand that. The age of consent in 32 countries around the world, including Germany, Austria, China, and Brazil. So these are not just all third world countries. These are modernized countries. 32 countries, including Germany, Austria, China, and Brazil, is 14. In six countries, including South Korea and Japan, it is 13. In Angola and the Philippines, it is 12. So not to be graphic, but I want you to understand in the Philippines, it becomes very difficult to prove in court that the 12-year-old did not give consent to the 45-year-old. These are children. I coach kids these age every day. And it makes, me, it makes me sick to my stomach. Paul said last week that he was in debt to Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, meaning he was to show the light of the world to everyone God put in front of him. So please understand something. This is not me bashing anyone who is homosexual. This is not me bashing anyone who fits in these categories that are mentioned in verses 28 through 32. This is not me giving you a reason to do that. It is the opposite. Paul is telling us how we are to love them. And that is by telling them of the truth and telling them what is coming We all fit here somewhere. In, in fact, we all fit everywhere here. But we have a hope. We have a truth that we're not giving to other people who need it. The church for really the last probably half century has failed terribly at addressing this specific issue because we have either sided on truth but ignored love, so what you're doing is wrong, but then you're this person, it's like we treat them like they weren't even created in the image of God, like they're this dirty leper, and we exclude them and don't say anything to them. We treat them like they're on the outskirts of society. Or we side on the side of love, but we ignore truth and just go, yeah, do what you want. It's all you, it's good. But you can't have one without the other. We have to approach the world with a humble heart, knowing that we received a salvation we didn't deserve. 
but we also have to approach them understanding that it's not just available to us, it's available to them too. The moment we start saying that certain types of people, no matter how bad they are or what they've done, are no longer, they no longer fit in the category of, of being able to hear that, they don't deserve to have that preached to them, we're no better than anyone listed here. The same way all are under wrath, salvation is presented to all who will believe. And that's carried out by us. We have to speak truth and we have to do it lovingly. And we have to understand and preach that the wrath of God is coming. He will not hold back his hand forever. So we can't be slow. We can't be silent. We can't be still. In a time like no other, I guarantee you, maybe those of you who are older and maybe you went through World War II or something like that, anyone under that age, we have never been in a time like today where people were looking for answers the way that they are right now. And we have it and we're not saying anything. Or when we do, we're not speaking truth. We're just accepting and allowing anything we see so we don't have to deal with conflict. This morning, I want us to all pray that God rips us apart inside for either living this way or not loving and bringing truth to those who still do. Father, thank you for your word. Even though the truth is painful, you have made it available to us anyways when we were so undeserving. I pray this morning that you would help us to see that we are undeserving that you would help us, those of you who don't know you, to see that they are under your wrath. Help us to see their need for you, their need for the salvation that only comes through Jesus' work on the cross because for your people, the wrath that we still deserve was borne by him. But for those who have not come to know him yet, the wrath will be borne by themselves. And that is something that we never want anyone to have to see. Bring us to our knees this morning. Tear our hearts apart for this truth that hurts, but we need it so badly every second of every day. Thank you for being just. Thank you for being fair. And at the same time, providing a way for us when we could not do it ourselves. I pray these things in your name.